this morning we're returning to our sermon series through Acts. Uh, we are in Acts 13, and Acts 13 brings us back to the church in Antioch uh, that we were introduced to in Acts 11. Uh, but before we read this God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us ask the Lord to bless it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, creator of the seen and unseen, at the beginning of time, you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them through the power of your word and spirit. So send to us now your spirit, who moved over the face of the waters to move within our hearts and minds, that we might have our minds open to receive the recreating power of your word. Through Jesus the Christ, we ask these things. Amen. We're looking at verses 1 through 3 in Acts 13. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to begin this morning by qualifying my sermon title, The Qualities of a Missional Church. And the reason for this is I think we need to define this term missional. Now, missional is a term that is, has been used uh, more and more recently in church history to identify churches that are devoted to missions. It's a church that has made mission outside of its walls a part of its DNA, a part of its identity, a church which arranges its life together around living out the reality that God sent his son into the world and that his son sends, in turn, sends out those who belong to him. This is what the word mission means, to send. And Jesus sends out those who belong to him to fulfill God's mission in the world, to seek and save the lost through the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation that the kingdom of God has drawn near in Jesus Christ and that salvation has been widely and freely given through him. It's a salvation that frees people from their sins, reconciles them to God and draws them into relationship with God as citizens of his kingdom by faith. A missional church then understands itself as sent into the world to participate in God's redemptive work. But do you see the problem with calling a church missional? The problem is it is redundant. The reality is that the church was created primarily for two purposes, to worship God 
and to go forth into the world to accomplish what God had tasked it with, his mission. This is why several pastors and theologians have expressed it is not so much that the church of God has a mission in the world. It's not so much that the church of God has a mission in the world as the mission of God has a church. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Mission is not then some sort of optional activity within the life of the church. It isn't one aspect of the programming of the church. Mission is a primary reason why the church exists. And this mission is the proclamation of the gospel in order that others might be drawn to worship the one true and living God. If a church isn't concerned with reaching others with the gospel beyond itself, then there is a problem with the church's understanding of its fundamental purpose for existing. So I even hesitate to use the term missional church. One shouldn't have to add that sort of descriptor. But that is unfortunately where we are today. With many churches confused about their purpose for existing and the other churches needing to have some sort of qualification to identify themselves. And a missional church is what we find here in Acts 13. This passage highlights the church's calling to go forth and to participate in God's redemptive work. This is a pivotal moment in the early church, as we will see. But for us today, this passage will help us to think about the qualities of a church which is committed to the tasks given to it by God to spread the gospel, to seek the evangelization of the lost, to do the work of establishing God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Dearly beloved, this is the type of church that we at Covenant want to be. And I have four qualities of a missional church that we find here that I would like to lift up for our consideration this morning. So first, a missional church has an understanding that the mission of God is global in scope. A missional, missional church has an understanding that the mission of God is global in scope. It is by God's good providence that we are here in Acts 13 on the Sunday after we celebrated Epiphany. The wise men coming from the east to bow before the Christ child revealed that Jesus did not merely come as a light to the Jewish people. He came as a light to all nations. So salvation given in Jesus wasn't simply for Israel. The gospel was always intended to be global in scope. God's plan was to bring people from the ends of the earth to come and to worship him, to be his people. And this is made clear in Jesus' ministry. While Jesus' primary focus is bringing the gospel to the Jews first, he doesn't exclude those outside of Israel. And of course, we would not forget that his great commission explicitly instructed his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. 
And at the beginning of Acts, we find Jesus again telling his disciples that they are to go and to be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, in Judea, but also in Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And as we have moved through the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel spread outward from Jerusalem. Now, much of this was influenced by persecution. But here in Acts 13, we find something else. We find the Antiochian church commissioning Saul and Barnabas to the work that the Lord had called them to. And what was that work? To go to the Gentiles. Remember back in Acts 9, this is what Ananias was told was the Lord's calling over Saul's life. And here, years later, it is finally coming to fruition. This means that it is here that the church, for the first time in recorded history, is commissioning individuals on behalf of particular church communities to take the gospel to unreached people in foreign lands. Antioch becomes, as far as we know, the first local church to intentionally send out workers for global missions. And this begins a new error in the life of the church, as evidence in the rest of Acts. It's the error of mission and missionary journeys, the fulfilling of the Great Commission, going to the ends of the earth and seeking to share the gospel that all might hear and respond. And the Antiochians, the Antiochian church's commitment to other lands flows from its inherent understanding that the gospel is for all people. Look at the leadership of the church. It is Barnabas, who, as we know, was a Levite, but being a diaspora Jew from Cyprus, it's easy to imagine he would have been very familiar and even sympathetic to those of Greek culture. There was also Simeon, who we are told was called Niger. Now, Niger is a Latin word which means black. This might seem to us today to be politically incorrect, but his nickname is undoubtedly a reference to the color of his skin. He has a Jewish name, but was almost certainly African. We have Lucius in this list. Lucius is a Latin name, so he was probably brought up in Roman culture. He was a Gentile. And we are told that he was from Cyrene, which is present-day Libya. So he, too, was African. If we remember, in Acts 11, we were told that men from Cyprus and Cyrene were the first who went to Antioch to begin to teach the Greeks. And I think it's safe to assume, therefore, that Lucius was probably in this group and had remained in Antioch as a teacher. There's also Menaean. Menaean is a Greek form of a Hebrew name, so he was probably a Hellenistic Jew. The thing that draws our attention, though, is that he is described as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That is Herod Antipas. This is the very same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded and was involved in the trial of Jesus. 
Menaean would have been seen as a sort of prince having been raised in the royal court with Herod. He would have been a man of very high station, connected intimately with very powerful people. So think about the weight of what is said here. Herod had acted as an enemy of the Christian faith. He had mocked Jesus at his trial. But one who had been as a foster brother to him became not only a Christian, but a leader in this church. And then finally, we have Saul, the former Pharisee and enemy of the church who had been converted to Jesus Christ and called to serve him. He had immediately turned aside from his obsessive pursuit to persecute the church and began a passionate pursuit of building up the faith that he had once tried to destroy. This is quite an eclectic group but this was also a diverse cosmopolitan city and so we see the gospel crossing racial ethnic cultural socioeconomic and religious lines these men were diverse in all of these ways and there was no doubt some major differences existed among them differences that they had to learn to bear with each other through but they were clearly of one heart and mind when it came to their faith in and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. In their diversity, there was clarity that the gospel was for all people because it had been for each of them. I don't think we have to wonder what their ideas were on the Lord calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation. They understood this well. They could physically see what the church was supposed to look like. And they represented it in part. And this gave to them a passion to see it realized in a fuller way. A missional church will understand deeply, intimately, that God's mission is global in scope and will pursue it in that way. The next quality of a missional church is that it is willing to pursue God's purpose despite the perceived cost to itself. It is willing to pursue God's purpose despite the perceived cost to itself. It should strike us as somewhat audacious that the church in Antioch was willing to send out Saul and Barnabas so readily. In fact, they sent them with their blessing. They sent them with the full identification in support of the church. It wasn't begrudgingly. They said, yes, we affirm the Lord's calling over you. We are with you in this great enterprise. Go for the sake of the Lord's work on behalf of this church. We support you and commend you to God's grace. And Saul and Barnabas will later reveal their continued identification with the Antioch church when they return there in chapter 14 to give a report on the work that they have been doing. But these men were arguably the Antiochian church's most gifted teachers and leaders this was a young church and I think it's safe to assume that they had many needs I think it's also safe to assume that they didn't have a very deep bench if you will and this is what makes this move so shocking could they really afford to send out their best and brightest could they afford to send their most gifted 
But the church sent them out for the sake of furthering God's kingdom in the world. They were willing to give up two of the most outstanding men they had for God's purposes elsewhere. They released them into the world without, so it seems, any hesitation. This could have easily been a moment where they balked at what they perceived the Lord calling them to do. It could have been a moment when they doubted their discernment and became anxious about what would become of the growth and vitality their church was enjoying. What will happen if we send out our best leaders? But their action at this moment reveals how important obeying God and participating in his redemptive work was to them. It reveals how important missions is to the church. It isn't a second-rate task. I think we have to ask ourselves with total honesty if what they did shocks us. Does it strike us as a waste to send the best, perhaps to a people that might be uneducated and uncivilized, Would we be willing to pay the potential cost? Our answer to this speaks to the priority that we set on missions. But perhaps this is a provocative thought for us. The well-known missionary David Livingstone once said, God had only one son, and he was a missionary. Think about that. God did not withhold his best and brightest, but sent him into the world to fulfill his mission to save. And this gets us to our third quality. A missional church is focused on seeking God in worship, prayer, and fasting. A missional church is focused on seeking God in worship, prayer, and fasting. It is in seeking God that the church comes to understand its calling and to have confidence in pursuing it. It's when the church dedicates herself to listening to the word of God, wrestling with it in prayer, devoting herself to hungering after the Lord alone through fasting, that the church is then sent out. That the Holy Spirit reveals God's will to the church through this time of worship, prayer, and fasting was not just a one-time deal either. It's not just a fluke or coincidence that the Holy Spirit speaks to those in Antioch in this context. This is not the only time that Acts gives witness to this happening. It is a pattern in Acts. And this pattern reveals that for those who come seeking the Lord with a robust desire to give God glory, with an eager expectation to meet with the Lord, with an open heart to hear his voice, that the Lord makes himself present through the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of these devotional practices. And their devotion and worship fans the flame of mission. It is through this time of worship, prayer, and fasting that they are equipped and encouraged to get sent out into the world to do the Lord's work. And this means that we have some self-examination to do in the church in the West I don't think that it is any secret that the volume of missions and the number of missionaries being sent out by the Western world has been in decline for some time. The majority of missions and missionaries are now coming from churches in the global South and the global East. And they are being sent where else but 
to the Western world, among other places. Why is that? Why is it that missions has declined in the West? Well, we could say that the church in its entirety has declined in the West, but I would like to suggest that perhaps the Western church's commitment in participation in missions is anemic because the church's devotional practices are anemic. And this is a point at which we have to examine ourselves. Are we a people of prayer? Let me ask you this. How much time do you devote to prayer daily? Are we giving the Lord time to speak to us? Are we spending the time personally seeking his will? Or is our prayer life filled with short and infrequent prayers? Here's a good test. How uncomfortable do you get when you are exposed to a longer period of prayer? If you squirm and struggle, then it might just be revealing a lack of experience with prayer personally. Those who make a regular habit of prayer find that they build up an endurance to pray for longer and longer periods of time. And the more we pray, the more we learn dependency on the Lord and the more we develop a greater comfort in yearning to call upon the Lord in every aspect of our lives. What about fasting? How often do you hunger for the Lord in such a way as to put even food aside for a period of time. And too often we treat fasting as though it were a devotional practice of the old covenant that has been made irrelevant and abolished by the new covenant. But when, you, when Jesus spoke of fasting, he said this, when you fast, do it like this. He does not indicate that this practice that it's a practice that his people will not continue to utilize. Rather, he encouraged it to be used properly, just as he did with prayer and giving. And here and in other places, we find the church fasting. Clearly, they took seriously this practice. Do we? It's been my observation over the years that in those with greater understanding and passion to pursue missions there has also been a more frequent practice of fasting. I hear about fasting more from my missionary friends than anybody else. And this passage indicates that there is, a, that there is some connection between the two. And I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that worship in the West has been perverted by pushing personal preferences and politics. Worship has become more and more shaped by the culture around us than it has held firm to biblical convictions. And this has caused worship to be very me-centered and individualistic. Westerners come to worship with all sorts of expectations, unbiblical and selfish expectations. Worship trends indicate that we expect, and I'm speaking generally here, I hope this isn't true at Covenant, but worship trends indicate that we expect to simply be entertained or encouraged or inspired, or we simply expect to get done as quickly as possible so we can check a box and get home to watch the ball game or to the golf greens to work on our putting game. 
This passage reveals to us that Scripture not only proclaims that true worship gives God the glory he is due, but it does something to us individually and collectively. It equips us and empowers us to be sent out into the world. If worship produces missions, then inadequate worship produces, well, it doesn't produce any godly fruit. If there is no power in worship, there is no power in missions. Worship is where mission begins. It's also where mission leads to. And this makes a devotion to biblical worship important for more than just giving God glory in the way he has prescribed. And so we are encouraged by this passage to examine our own worship service, to make sure that it's founded upon biblical principles. And if it isn't, then it needs to be reformed. But we have to examine our own hearts and expectations as well. We have to ask ourselves each time we step into the sanctuary, what do I come here expecting? Have I come here seeking God? expecting to meet with him, ready to meet with him, willing to give him my undivided attention and my unadulterated, heartfelt praise, bringing no personal agenda, but prepared to receive God's word for me today. Have I come here to worship in spirit and truth, longing not only to give God the honor he is due, but also desiring to be transformed in his presence, longing to be equipped and empowered to be sent out into the world? Or do I come here with other expectations? Dearly beloved, your expectations will shape your experience here. That I can promise you. The church in Antioch approached worship in a reverent way, and the reward blessed not just their lives, but the entire world. If all churches would approach worship in this way, then I honestly believe we would see no shortage of missionaries being sent out in response. Fourth and finally, a missional church is intentional to seek and respond to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. A missional church is intentional to seek and respond to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We see here that before the church acted, the Holy Spirit had already called. As one commentator notes, the Spirit's charge set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them, is for the leaders of the church to acknowledge by their actions what God had already decided and revealed. Said differently, the leaders understood that their task was to seek out and obey what the Spirit was revealing for them to do. And they did this by discerning God's will through worship prayer and fasting, and then releasing Saul and Barnabas from their roles in the church in Antioch and commissioning them to a new assignment, to global missions. There are two important points here. First, the Holy Spirit was the initiator of this action. God had worked first. The church isn't acting and then asking God to bless what it's doing. It's merely following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And second, the church made itself attentive and open to receive what the Spirit was guiding her to do. This is what we see here. We have the church taking deliberate action to pursue foreign mission work, which has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, there was divine initiative 
and human response. This is how God has ordained to work through his church. And it's the pattern that we are to follow. Antioch then isn't just a model for missionary deployment. It's a model for missionary vision. And even as there are details here unique to this particular instance, there's also a general principle to be learned here. God is constantly at work, redeeming, pursuing, calling. Which means the church should be regularly seeking the Lord's will. Which includes identifying gifts within the church. Discerning how the Lord might be calling individuals to use their gifts. And supporting those who have a specific calling from the Lord. This is how the church participates in God's redemptive work. And it begins with having leaders who are eager to do these things who have an understanding of the church's primary task being worship and missions, who are eager to seek out the Lord's will, who are able to discern with enough clarity and cast vision for what the Lord is calling the church to be and to do as a community of faith. This seems to be lacking in far too many churches, though, because leaders are too busy simply focused on surviving and maintaining numbers within the walls of the church as though that were the primary goal of the church, rather than growing up in the Lord and growing out into the world. And I pray that that is never the case here at Covenant, that we would be merely seeking to survive and maintain numbers within our own walls. So as we begin a new year, I want to urge you to pray for the leaders here at Covenant. Pray for sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray for clarity of vision and boldness to pursue it. Next Sunday, we will ordain and install new elders and deacons. You have elected them to these roles. Pray for them. And pray for the other officers here at Covenant. We should desire to be like a church, like the church was in Antioch. Discerning, trusting, courageous, faithful, missional. This is what it's going to take to ensure that the gospel is proclaimed to the estimated 1.6 to 3 billion unevangelized people in the world. That is 1.6 to 3 billion with a B people who have never been reached by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have never heard the gospel for the first time and will die without ever hearing how they might inherit eternal life in the peace and joy of God's kingdom through faith in his son. None of us should be satisfied with that many who have never heard. And we shouldn't be satisfied with any number not having had an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. Therefore, the church of Jesus Christ must not neglect its important task of being sent into the world. So let us be globally minded Let us give God's mission in the world our best, trusting that he will care for us even as we pour ourselves out for him. And let us dedicate ourselves to discerning what God will have us to do, devoting ourselves to prayer, fasting, and worship until all have heard and had an opportunity to respond. Let us pray. 
Father, may we receive your word to us this day in faith. And may we have the courage to obey it. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 